0: Listening to the Writers' Forum, I'm your host, Mike Tuss, and today, I have the privilege of interviewing Richard Rhodes. Mr. Rhodes is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, as well as countless other non-fiction books, biographies, a memoir entitled A Hole in the World, and even several novels. I think, if if my guess is right, the total may be up to 23 or 24 books. Besides the Pulitzer, he has received numerous other accolades related to his writing as a journalist and a historian. And today, we'll be discussing his latest book titled Scientist, E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks very much. Well, before we get to the book on E.O. Wilson, let me ask you a little bit about your writing influences, something we try to do on the show. You've been a journalist and a historian, um, take me back in time, what made you decide to be a writer?
1: You know, like a lot of writers, in the well, I guess I'd have to say the older generation, before so many writers went to writing school, uh, I kind of backed into becoming a full-time writer. I was going to be a Methodist minister when I was uh, in my teenage years, but I put that aside when I realized that the things I wanted to talk about in the world, uh, I didn't need the, if you will, supernatural superstructure. Like A a philosophy course in my freshman year at Yale kind of shaped that for me. But even then, I really didn't know what I was going to do, except I went to work for the uh, Yale Daily News and spent a lot of time there my last two years in college and went directly from there to what was at the time a uh, competitor of Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, as a writer trainee. So step by step, I moved into the world of, of writing nonfiction or journalism, really. And then later on, it was influenced by... Uh, my boss at Hallmark Cards where i worked in public relations for about 10 years after i moved back to my hometown of Kansas City Missouri he himself was working his way into writing full time for the new york times as a cultural correspondent and uh, he became a kind of a model so step-by-step, and really the first kind of professional writing I did outside of corporate writing was uh, book reviews, which in a way was a great way to get into into the writing business. But after that, I moved to writing for magazines, and as it became possible to write full-time, I switched to writing books and don't really do any magazine work anymore. So kind of backwards and convoluted, but that's the way it used to be.
0: It, that's interesting. Now, you have written other biographies, most notably of John Audubon and Hetty Lamar. By the way, I was surprised to see the Hedy Lamar one. Why did you decide <laughs> why did you decide to choose E. O. Wilson as your next subject? You talk a little bit about this at the end of the book, I think.
1: I do, yeah. Ed was an old friend. I had gone to see Ed back in the seventies when I was writing a magazine article and I wanted his input on. So I interviewed him at his offices at the Museum of Natural History at Harvard Uh, and we became kind of friends indirectly and occasionally we'd be in touch with each other. As, As I got older and particularly as he got older, we talked about my doing his biography and when he turned eighty-nine, I realized I'd better jump on it. Uh, although he's still very much alive and vigorously at work at ninety-two, but but it was time to get the job done. And Ed had decided by then—I'm flattered to say that he didn't think anyone else. He didn't want anyone else to write his biography. If if I didn't do it, no one would. So so all these things came together. But I've admired Ed and his work and his. His development as a a scientist and as a uh, writer, uh, because he is that as well, Uh, he's won two Pulitzer Prizes for his writing work, one of which I was one of the judges for, and really wanted to understand more about how he had come to expand his range so much across his life.
0: Well, you you know, is it difficult—Wilson had written his own autobiography, correct?
1: Oh, in several different ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Is, is it diff- made it much easier for me, I must say.
0: Oh, I was going to ask, does that make it easier <laughs> or harder?
1: Well, no, it made it easier in the sense that I could quote from his, his several memoirs and, and his autobiography. It made it maybe a little trickier because now I've only seen one review of my book so far— and it was in The New Yorker. And the, there was some... I'm sorry, I'm thinking of the review that was on the New York Times uh, website. Uh, the reviewer criticized me for basically only using, as she said, published sources. And did Not interviewing Ed enough, when in fact, and not writing enough about his family, when in fact he's an extremely private man would never discuss his his family, and I took from his work what was there to take in the way of, of of the details of his life. but I would add when we talked about writing his biography, I knew that he had, as a young man uh, just postgraduate at Harvard uh, had received a fellowship that allowed him at the age of twenty five to spend nine months crossing the South Pacific from island to island, including Australia and New Zealand, collecting ants, especially by then, (laughs) often in places where no one had ever professionally collected ants before. So he brought back to the Harvard Museum about a thousand brand new, previously unidentified species of ant. But his As he won this award, uh, he was preparing to to marry the, the lovely woman he had been courting for the past year in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he didn't want to lose her, and he was afraid he would. So he made a deal with her that he would write a letter to her every day he was gone, which he actually did and had kept them all. And I insisted, look, Ed, I'm not going to be able to write your biography unless you let me read those letters, which, which he did. I then got an envelope in the mail full of all, a bunch of airmail letters, those little blue slips that people used to write airmail on, wadded up, folded, thrown into a box, and, and took, opened them all up and copied them all and had them transcribed and really did get a wonderful view, not only of a developing love that has lasted all his life. His wife just died a couple months ago in 97, mm. and they were together all those years, all the way back to the early 1950s. But at the same time, it was a, a narrative, almost a journal of his odyssey through these, these new places and this new world, Papua New Guinea, uh, the island and the family that were the, the model for uh, the, the musical South Pacific, just. Wonderful stories about about a young man exploring this this rich world that was then even more primitive than it is now.
0: You know, I don't I don't know about this New York Times writer, but I, I thought you did. There's a wonderful love story that's weaved in here. I certainly picked that up concerning his wife and the long distance letters and the the, the arrangement oh, yeah. and and the adopting of a child and. So I don't know about that criticism, because I, I didn't see <laughs> that at all. Let me ask you this. In, back to the choice to write about Wilson. You say at, towards the end of the book that you chose Wilson, quote, because I saw a quality rare among human beings. He never stopped growing or expanding in range, close quote. Um, if I can be so forward as to say, that seems to me to be true for you as well.
1: Well, I certainly was aware of some parallels between our lives. Ed was kind of a Huck Finn in semi-rural Alabama as a child with a broken family and so forth. And uh, I was kind of an urban Huck Finn in Kansas City with a broken family. Ended up at a a boy's home for my adolescence, a very benevolent place as it happened. So we did have a lot in common, which I think is what had, had fueled our friendship from the beginning. Uh, This kind of recognition that we were both, in a a, a very significant way, outsiders into the world we entered. You know, I lucked into a four-year scholarship to Yale from a boys' home, rural farm boys' home in Independence, Missouri. And Ed found his way to Harvard by recommendations from faculty in Alabama who realized what a rare uh, scientist he could be. So we did share a lot, and and in that sense, uh, I was drawn to him as a human being. But to speak just of of the growth that he had, one of the things, uh, there's a guy with an unpronounceable Hungarian name who wrote a book about what he calls a flow experience, meaning when you reach a point of competence in in your work, that you kind of disappear into it when you're doing it. I find that as I write. Uh, It's it's a a process this uh, psychologist has pointed out where after a while it gets too easy and you become bored with this area you become an expert in. And if you don't move up and out from there to take risks uh, in some regard, uh, you go stale. I've seen this a lot in the field of writers who always write about the same subject. I really don't understand how they do it. I mean, I'm sure it's safe in a way, but but what do they do with their sense that they've already covered the ground ten ways to Sunday before? So what Ed did was start out and made himself the world's leading expert. On these, on ants, on the the social insects, Uh, he made. He's the one who discovered how ants communicate with each other. Uh, Now, uh, in the late 1950s, when he made this discovery, had quite figured it out yet, and he discovered it was a pheromone trail that ants lay from a from a small gland that uh, attaches to their stingers. You know, ants are evolved from an early primitive wasp. Which is why they have, most of them uh, sting. I didn't really understand that until I heard about the fire ants that Ed worked with as a, as a research subject. Anyway, Ed started out there, but then he moved on to begin to study uh, vertebrates as well as invertebrates. And first he wrote a book incorporating everything he knew about ants. Up to the time he wrote the book, everything that was in the literature about ants, uh, that was the book that won him uh, one of his Pulitzer Prizes.
0: Yeah, and, you, you know, this is interesting because one, where I wanted to go next is he starts off in that field, entomology, starts off with ants, then he moves into vertebrae, even studies islands for a while. But then the real big move, it seems to me, is that he evolves beyond all of that to what we now call sociobiology, correct?
1: Exactly. And sociobiology is the study of the, the uh, evolutionary support that even human beings bring to their learning about the world. I think that's a fair way to say it. But he ran afoul of a kind of a clique of Marxist <laughs> oriented scientists in and around Harvard who believed that human beings were tabula rasa, were blank sheets, that we were born with no uh, uh, inherited characteristics at all. Not not meaning, of course, physical characteristics, but social characteristics, that, that everything we do as social beings is learned. They wanted to believe that because it fit into the Marxist belief that societies can be completely changed from capitalism to to uh, communism. Well, they were just incensed when Ed published Sociobiology. He doesn't suggest that we're all uh, automatons, that we're all robots, but rather that, that we have inherited some abilities to learn, that, that focus or narrow, if you will, what we can learn and what we do learn. And from their point of view, that was just anathema. So they attacked him ferociously. They accused him of picking up the old eugenics movement and said that that led and could lead again to the death camps of Nazi Germany. I mean, what a, what a vicious attack that was. Yeah,
0: and, and dumped and up. He, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say he really dump- was
1: shaken by it. He yeah. was shaken by it for for about three days until he stopped and thought, "Wait a minute, what's the basis for my arguments? I'm not making these up out of blue sky. I, they're based on evidence." I mean, his book has—I think I actually counted all the references. In the book, Sociobiology, they come to something like 17 or 1800 different books and papers that he worked his way through in order to support the arguments that he offers in that big book. But it's true, he was inventing an entire new scientific field of inquiry. And yeah. when you do that, I've discovered in writing about scientists across my life, you almost always encounter per- ferocious resistance from yeah. people who have have settled their sense of how the world works in their fields and and aren't prepared to hear anybody who disagrees with those positions. I mean, it's as if, well, I mean, it's true. You know, Einstein, who who changed Newtonian physics with his ideas about relativity, uh, he didn't receive his Nobel Prize for that work. Mm -hmm. That was still too controversial 10 years after he offered it. He received his Nobel Prize for some other work he'd done earlier. Yeah. So it's hard to change the paradigm, and Ed ran afoul of a particularly vicious group of people. Truly, let's call them that because they were. He there were riots in the streets in Harvard. They, he there were calls for his being fired. It was a sh- shaking experience, and but he finally found his way through. Not before. Having fights with the anthropologists who didn't like the idea that that he had found a, a, a way into anthropology that was different from theirs, there was a little arrogance in the way he wrote about it. <laughs> he, he talked about the time will come when sociology will be completely subsumed yeah. under sociobiology, and so yeah. will anthropology. I mean, he basically was saying their fields were limited in ways that that he was offering. An
0: expansion too. Well, and and you, in fact,
1: he was.
0: And you, but, but you you cover this. To to yeah, but you cover this this dispute uh, pretty well in the book for for readers who are interested. Um, let me ask you this though, because I want to come back to that. But I wanted to make a point about the sociobiology book that I think might be interesting to readers. You note that he starts the book with a quote from Albert Camus' book, The Myth of Sisyphus that there's only one yes. true serious philosophical question, and that's, you know, basically whether to commit suicide. This was very per- per- personal to Wilson, but it was also important to him scientifically, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely, and and I was just struck by how unusual it was for a book in the field about sociobiology uh, for him to start there. But I connected it back, and I think, I think this is is accurate. His father committed suicide just before Ed went off to uh, graduate school. And he did so because he was a really lost alcoholic. And Ed, Ed felt, ultimately, as he worked his way through his feelings about it, that his father, in a way, had done a courageous thing that he didn't, as he often told his son, didn't want to turn out to be one of those stumble bumps that you see down on the street, as he put it. And in a way what he had what he did was kind of take the Roman the Roman uh step away from, from dying a, a messy and tragic death. And it freed Ed in a way because his father had been trying to get Ed to give up going for a doctorate. He had an M.A. by then and stay home and take care of of his father and his father's wife. So Ed was suddenly allowed to pursue his own destiny, if you will, because of his father's choice. Well... I mean, there are a lot of places you could dive into sociobiology. It was very personal, I think, on Ed's part to, to go in that way, and and really very brave. No one seems to have really commented on that connection before, but it was there. It speaks to something, that, if I may just expand on this for a second, it speaks to something that's really important, I think, in writing. You have to find emotional connections with the subject you're writing about. Otherwise, and I don't mean this as a put-down, but otherwise you're writing journalism. You're writing where you have a formula and you write to that formula. If you want to get to the depths of something, it really and this is also true in science, as I've discovered again and again with the scientists I've gotten to know, you really do have to have a deep personal connection with what you're writing about. That has worked for me in the subjects, the books that have been, at least from my perspective, most successful. And I don't mean financially. But I mean, I mean personally. Mm-hmm. So, and other books I've written, maybe not so much, but certainly the biography of Audubon, which I connected with in, in ways uh, because I spent time out in the natural world as well. Uh, the, the Wilson biography, and, and of course, my personal memoir, A Hole in the World. And also, the making
0: the atomic bomb paradoxically, but I won't go into that. Well, he got, you you know, you were talking about the Marxist group that, among other things, dumped a a, a pitcher of water on his head at at a conference. But he also had some opposition from a group called the Sociobiology Study Group. Uh, He had opposition from James Watson on the issue of uh, laboratory uh, versus biologists versus field biologists. He gets into a, a scrap with um, some of the philosophers, like John Rawls. I mean, is this just, for the reader, is this just turf wars, or is there something deeper going on?
1: Well, it's turf wars, but as someone says of Ed, Ed was a bit of a bomb thrower. He would, he, you know, he he's a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. There are people who go out and work in one specific piece of science, and, and often they're no play they turned up. New discoveries that lead to Nobel prizes. I, there's no question Ed would have had a Nobel Prize years ago if there were one in his field, but there isn't. So, so he's won every other prize there is in biology. But, but he likes to step into a field that's maybe gone gone quiet, maybe gone a little moribund, and go over the entire field. Pull every important paper, and maybe a lot of papers that weren't so important. Just have, do field work if it's need, if he needs to do it to to fill in some of the holes, and then synthesize the whole field and find new ways to look at it. Let's just take that island biogeography thing you mentioned. Ed was interested. I, probably because of his trip to the South Pacific, in how islands can be kind of miniatures of of continental scale ecosystems, small enough to study, which you really can't do on a continental scale. It's just too much. So once he made that connection, he started working with a with a great uh, young uh, biologist. Uh, Robert MacArthur, who had already made important discoveries at the age of 30, but who died tragically uh, of of cancer in in his early 40s. So it was one of those guys lost to the world. Ed and MacArthur worked together to write about what was called island biogeography, which is how islands, let's say, start out... uh, devoid when they first emerge below the, the water as a volcano or something, start out as w- without any species on them, and then how they populate, and the way uh, extinctions on those, those small-scale worlds match up eventually and balance out with, with uh, new, new, new in, in immigrants from other places, so that you've got a kind of a balanced ecology between predators and prey, between uh, one kind of feeders and another kind of feeders. This, this lovely idea suddenly over the years found wider and wider application because we've been cutting up the world into islands for a long time, we human beings. Mm-hmm. If you surround a patch of forest with plowed fields, you've created an island. Uh, And of course, that's what's going on in Central and South America these days at a rapid pace. They're cutting down the forests and planting uh, crops that don't go for very long because forests are not particularly fertile places. So in the study of how to remedy this problem of chopping up the world into pieces of wilderness surrounded by civilization, this island biogeography suddenly had enormous application to the larger problems that 's the way I think one sees how ed 's work uh, fertilized larger and larger scale uh, problems and also solutions
0: and it, it so may, we come we,
1: we we come ultimately to to his transformation. Uh, in the 1980s when he realized that it was time to do something about the, the rapid extinction of more and more species of creatures in the world. there was At that time, it was assumed that about one species went extinct every year. Ed started looking into it and found out it was one every day. And at that point, he got serious and began the work that has really occupied him for most of the rest of his life, which is trying to save what's left of wilderness in the world. Not so much just to have trees, but in order to save species, because it's one thing to lose a forest. You can always plant it, and 100 years from now you have another forest. But if a species is extinct... It, it takes a million years or so for a species to evolve from one to the next. You, we're not going to get them back.
0: Right. And you cover this. You cover his transition to that in the book, which results remarkably in Paul Simon making an appearance in the book, um, which I didn't <laughs> well, expect. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, we
1: had this absolutely amazing day I, when he I said, know. I'm, ha- I'm having someone in for lunch. and. And uh, you could join us if you want to. And I said, who? And he said, Paul Simon. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, I joined him for lunch. And Paul has been supporting Ed's work. Yeah. He's donated the proceeds from concerts to Ed's pro- project that he calls, Ed calls Half Earth, meaning let's save what's left of the wilderness in the world, uh, figuratively speaking, half the world, for wilderness and leave the rest for us yeah. There's more than enough uh carrying capacity for a stable human population and we're going to be fairly stable by the end of this century it's estimated we'll probably level off at about 7 billion and then stay there. So, well, let me uh, so Simon indeed was at lunch and it was great fun to talk to him.
0: Well, let me add, we're about to run out of time Mike but I've got two more yep. I want to cover with you. It seems to me and I don't think I'm overreaching it's fair to compare Wilson with Darwin favorably. I mean, they both, there's, there's some analogy here too, they both start off studying animals, insects uh, for, for, and ants for Wilson, you know, finches, pigeons, whatever with Darwin, but they draw much larger conclusions about evolutions from their studies, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and in fact, Ed has been called Darwin's successor. And I think in terms of the richness of his work and the extent of his work, He's published more books than I have, and I write full time. Mm-hmm. He was a Harvard professor. He, he was a field biologist. I mean, he really is, a, is an amazingly productive human being, and he's published more than four hundred scientific papers as well. It's, it's so an, it's in intimidating. That sense, really, really. A, probably one of the one or two leading biologists of the 20th century sure. with his for, former nemesis Tim uh, Watson James Watson of of DNA structure fame as his counterpart
0: well let me let me end with a, a, a curveball if you will you know we live in a world currently where unfortunately i'm going to say science is being dismissed or questioned by many wilson actually and i ran across this in the book wrote something that you cited that seems relevant here, when uh, he was dealing with the attacks on his science by the Marxist group. He wrote, quote, it was obviously a contest of science against political ideology, and past history has shown that if the results of the research are sound, science eventually comes out on top, close quote. Now, you've written extensively on science, you've interviewed scientists. Uh, Is Wilson still right?
1: Well, yeah, but it depends on the time frame we're talking about. I mean, we have had dark ages. That was maybe before science had taken hold in the world. Uh, the fact is, science produces what we would once have called miracles on almost a weekly basis. And in that sense, I think people turn to it. But, but I... I sometimes think one could write history by writing about the unintended consequences of science. I mean, you know, it's wonderful to have a source of energy like nuclear power that that doesn't produce greenhouse gases. And if we would stop being so afraid of radiation, we might actually put it to better use than we do. But on the other hand, we got got nuclear weapons out of it, too. I I think that kind of frames the paradox. Science is not um, moral science is uh, is physical, if you will, is 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 neutral in that sense. So it's really ultimately up to up to us poor human beings with all of our complexities to figure out how to make it work to everyone's benefit and not not to to produce new kinds of poison gas. You know, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, that. But I would say I would just add basic science as opposed to technology. Basic science ultimately reveals more and more about how the world really works. And although a lot of those discoveries are not things people like, there's still a big fight about evolution in the world because it contradicts a lot of religious belief. So there is that as well. But ultimately, I, I do think it wins out. It's just where are we in the meantime?
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, You've been listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and I have been very privileged to interview Richard Rhodes, in part, about his new book, Scientist, E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. My pleasure.